Every so often we find a voice out in the wilderness that is worthwhile listening to. This gentleman that I have on today is a prophet. He called the financial recession and the economic collapse four years ago. And here we are ready to interview him. So grab yourself some coffee, sit back, relax, and we're about to get started. Enjoy the show, everybody. Welcome, my bold Americans, to another episode of America Emboldened with Greg Bolden on the America Out Loud Network. Today, my guest is none other than the uneducated economist. Now, if you don't know who the uneducated economist is right now, you would be no different than me just a few weeks ago. But you, the listeners, have told me I needed to get this guy on the show. And so I went on YouTube and I found that he has over 100,000 subscribers and he's been doing these uneducated economist things, we'll get into that in just a moment, for about four years. And he predicted almost everything that's happened in a very almost prophetic way. And so as I started looking at this, immediately I hit the email button and I sent Simon. Simon is the uneducated economist. I sent him an email and I was like, we got to get you on the show. And Simon makes it very uh, blunt on his YouTube page that all the information is entertainment. He has no background or formal education. He has no reason for you to believe a single thing that he says, but he brings opinions and hopes that there's awareness to a conversation that bring understanding to the incredibly, sometimes boring and complex topic of economics. So Simon, how are you? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for very thank you very much for having me on your show today. I'm really looking forward to this. Oh, I'm I'm so excited. So for those that have never seen Simon, uh, I'm going to paint a picture. I'm currently looking at Simon in the driver's seat of his van truck. I'm not really too sure. We'll get into uh, that in a second. Actually, it's a Toyota Corolla. Toyota Corolla. I kept, yeah. kept thinking of it as some type of truck this entire time. So yeah. the mysteries are uh, being revealed today. So he's sitting in the driver's seat of his Toyota Corolla. He's got little fuzzy dice facing me uh, and he's kind of like leaning over. And this is how he records many of his YouTube videos. It's directly from the driver's seat. And what I love about this approach is you feel like you're riding shotgun with Simon. You've come to your destination and you're just going to have a friendly conversation. You're going to listen to his intellect for just a few moments before he goes off to work or you guys have to split ways and you got to head into the house. And it's such a awesome, different way for a YouTuber to approach videos that I love the fact that you do it this way and seeing yeah, you on thanks. the Zoom call. I love it. This is great. So we painted <laughs> right the picture. On, man. Yeah, sounds good, man. All right. So so let's talk about you. I like to start off. I don't know anything about you. I know you live out in Oregon. Uh, tell me a little about who you are. Uh, paint a picture of, of your life, maybe how you got to where you are right now. Um, sure. So um, pretty much I have no background in economics. I didn't go to school for anything. I've never worked banking or financial advisory or investing or anything like that. I'm just a regular average guy who works at a lumber yard. And, um, during the 08 financial crisis, I was trying to buy a house and quickly found that my job that I was working at at the time, I uh, was doing construction dried up really quick and I had no income and started losing my house, you know, due to, you know, not being able to make the payments going into foreclosure and having no clue about economics or anything going on. I started going to the computer to try and figure out what it was. You know, I remember sitting in front of the TV, listening to guys on the news, talking about mortgage backed securities and credit default swaps. I had no clue of what any of that stuff was. So I went to the computers, what's a mortgage backed security? What's a credit default swap? And I never stopped asking questions and I just kept researching until here I am, you know. That's a, that's a great thing. I mean, what a time to be alive that you and I have grown up with the internet and the ability to self-educate. And YouTube yeah. is such a great resource for that as well. Uh, just a kind of sidebar, my mom was in the hospital a while back and I researched so much of what she had that the doctors asked her as I left, is your son a doctor? No, we just have the ability now to take in information, become sponges and yeah. then be able to apply that. But I believe you have some really good intuition to what you do uh, because I looked back and I wanted to see what was your very first uh, po uh, podcast. That's what I'm going to call it. Your YouTube videos what mm -hmm. was your very first YouTube video you did. And it was four years ago. And your first episode was about three minutes long. And it stated, I wanted to warn you all about the coming economic collapse. How do you feel 
looking at the fact we just had two quarters of a recession, which people are arguing over whether we're there or not. You and I know what the pain is when you go to the grocery store and have to buy chicken at double the price. Uh, we're on the verge of an economic collapse. Uh, we are seeing it. You were ahead of the curve. Uh, what was it that piqued your interest? Was it the lumber side? What, what, what were you looking at in the market that made you come on the YouTube and say, I'm going to start the uneducated economist? Um, well, it's kind of interesting how the channel got started because I had about four or five years ago when I was really kind of diving deep into research and gathering all this information and reading the Federal Reserve speeches and just trying to figure out what it was that was going on. I started talking a lot um, and I babble a lot like the people around me just like, dude, enough already. Kind of shut up already. All right. So I do talk a lot and I was working with this girl, Brittany, and I was talking about, I don't know, taper tantrum or something. I don't know what I was talking about, but she comes over and she puts her fists on my desk and she looks at me and she says, dude, you need to start a blog or a YouTube channel or do something because nobody here understands anything that you're talking about and you're driving us crazy. And I went, oh, right. Okay. Sorry, Brittany. So I grabbed my phone, I went down to my car, I fired it up and did the introductory video to the uneducated economist and it was born. <laughs> Thank you, Brittany, <laughs> wherever you Thank are. You, Thank Brittany. you, Brittany. Yeah, you've, it's you've funny because given... I saw her not too long ago and um, you know, I told her that I was just like, Brittany, you remember that conversation? She goes, I do remember that, you know, <laughs> so, yeah. So <laughs> she amazing. has a big, yeah, she was a big influence in the starting of this channel. <laughs> So, so you are uh, recording all of these where you live out in Oregon, correct? Yeah, I live in uh, Astoria, Oregon, the northwest corner of Oregon. How do you feel uh, the northwest corner of Oregon is representative of the overall United States? Have you taken your research on that level or do you just feel that that's a good microcosm in order to speak from? Um, well, I just grew up here. So it's just the place that I've been. Um, you know, I try to observe some of the things that are happening around me and then relate it to the macroeconomic picture. Um, there's a lot here um, to follow, especially when it comes to like the lumber industry, which is really where my channel had, uh, I got its big boost from. I was talking about lumber long before anybody was ever excited about lumber. So I had been putting out lumber videos or building supply videos, I don't know, once a week, every twice a week for, you know, a year before lumber took off to the 1700 per thousand. And then also being in the industry where like Oregon's like the number one lumber producing state. So I knew a lot of people within the mill. I knew a lot of loggers, you know, people who work the timber industry. So just having like kind of this being in the middle of it, you know, so to speak, and then having this insight working at a lumber yard, it just gave me a different perspective than most people had. So you know, yeah, I would say being up here in the Pacific Northwest has certainly given me a, a different, you know, view of things. And just for uh, listeners, so they understand, the cost of lumber uh, is so indicative of so much else in life. For the fact that where you're going to live, your shelter is reliant on lumber. So when we look at our housing costs throughout each of our developments in your local zip codes, as that cost goes up, so does housing. And as housing goes up, we have to look at interest rates, supply, demand. The Fed has to start figuring out what does quantitative easing look like? Should we push back? Uh, how do we stop inflation? So I, I think that you're onto something, uh, the fact that we can look at lumber. And I, I, I love the fact that Oregon as a spot where we're shipping that out to the rest of the United States gives us a barometer. Now, did you also see that in what's being shipped out in quantity? Have you been able to see price and quantity and shipping demands? Well, um, you know, I mean, as far as like th the lumber industry is a very unique one when it comes to like where the supply comes from, how it gets distributed through the through the nation. Um, it, it's kind of interesting to think about, like, you know, here I am right in the middle of like timber industry. Right. I got trees all around me. I got mills all around me. But like lumberyard, when we buy lumber, we buy it from wholesalers. So the lumber that we carry in our yard may come from Canada. It may come from Idaho. It may come from wherever. We don't really determine where it comes from. It just kind of flows through the system. So when I see that there's like 
like, especially like one of the unique things that I see in my yard, we get a truckload of lumber that comes in and you notice like all the units are from the same mill, right? They're from the exact same place. Everything has the, you know, the same labeling on it. Well, during the supply chain breakdowns and we had less lumber available coming through the system, all of a sudden I started seeing lumber wraps from companies that I had never even heard of before. And so lumber was coming from any direction that you could get it. And that really kind of set me to believe it was just like, wow, the flow of material going through the nation is now not going well. Like, you know, if you have like all these different mills that are now sitting in the yard, it doesn't show like a nice steady flow of material. It shows that they're just trying to get it from wherever they can. And that's where I knew it was just like, man, when I see all these different lumber mills coming through, I knew then that there was something up. So, um, you know, that's kind of the, one of the things that I saw happening. When I saw that the different mills were coming through and then I saw that there was a depletion in like pressure treated lumber, that's when I, it triggered right there. I was like, man, we are going to have a shortage and the price is going to go through the roof. And it was before anybody else was talking about it. And it was just simply because of some of the things that I saw as far as the lumber wraps and then the vendors not being able to distribute out, distribute out some, of the, uh, some of the materials that I'm used to getting on a regular basis. And so I was able to call out a lot of that stuff before anybody else did. Now, how did you make the connection? Was it that same idea that you were looking at food shortages? At what point were you starting to be more concerned? Because I know you did some shows about coming food shortages, and that still seems to be uh, a concern into the future as far as prepping and making sure people are prepared. Right. Uh, what are you looking at that's causing you to kind of question where that's coming from? Um, really, it's not so much the food production that's coming here in the United States. It's going to be the food production from the rest of the world and how they're slowing down and now they're having issues. And a lot of people just kind of focus in on the United States and say, well, you know, we have plenty of food here. We produce more food and export more food than any other nation does, you know, per capita. I mean, obviously like China and India, they produce more food, but as far as exporting food, the United States is definitely the number one. And when it comes to like food shortages around the world, that's going to start driving up prices here in the United States as the demand for food outside of the United States starts to increase. Well, just like anything else out there, if you have a demand outside of the nation that is driving up the price of food, it's going to drive up the price of food here for our domestic buyers as well. So that's really what I see like being the food shortage as far as an issue goes. It's not so much like the food not being available for purchase. It's more of the price of it's going to be so much nobody can afford it. And that's really, I think, where the food shortages is going to impact us the most. Yeah, I was talking to somebody who's in the food industry who told me that uh, the Ukraine, that there was such an important amount of wheat that the United States was importing in, that it's going to wreck the industry that re relies on wheat production uh, because those fields cannot be used now for probably decades. Uh, they've been absolutely just destroyed. And I yeah. don't think anyone's paying attention to the... Uh, I think there was a book a long time ago that says the uh, the earth is flat um, and no flat earthers. That's not what the book was about. Or it just was about how uh, everything's interconnected at this point, the way that we've uh, brought in supply demand that there's no getting away from uh, a disaster in one country, not having an effect on right. the United States uh, that we're all connected. And I may have said the wrong title of that book. I'll have to, I'll have to correct myself later on that one. All right. Yeah. So, so food but shortages, yeah, yeah I mean, it is kind of interesting to think about the wheat situation, because like, although Ukraine is the major supplier of wheat to the globe, the United States ended up producing more wheat this year than they have. Like they had a bumper crop. In fact, I think it was like a record amount of wheat that was produced, which is going to do really well for those particular farmers as the price of wheat has much higher than it was, you know, over the previous years. So this is going to be like, you know, a benefit to the domestic farmers here in the United States. The only problem with it is it's still not enough wheat to supply the world, which is going to continue to drive the, you know, the demand for food up. Um, one of my concerns that I see coming from this is that if you have such a high demand for food and the price does go up. So for example, we take the wheat farmers here in the United States, they start producing a lot of food or a lot of wheat that makes a lot of money because of the shortage of wheat that's around the world. Well, then other farmers are going to want to take advantage of those high wheat prices they're going to expand their farms. They're going to take out debt to try and do that, or maybe even just start a farm, you know, that, that can produce wheat. The next thing you're going to know is that we're going to have way too much wheat produced. And then we're going to have farmers going bankrupt. And that's where you start seeing government coming in and 
paying farmers to destroy crops and stuff like that. So I kind of think of the cause and effects from all this stuff, you know, if the price of food goes up, then people are going to want to take advantage of that. And then once the price or once the farmers try to take advantage of that by going into debt, then that's going to put them in a very precarious position as far as, you know, once the prices start to come back down again. So, so right now the government is arguing over whether or not we're in a recession, right? The, we, the markers are like depth diffusion. We talk about, you know, whereabouts we are. And right now it's like one, the, it's two to 3%. They say, if we hit a depth of like 5%, then that's when they can say we're in a recession. So we're getting over like semantics. What I look at is my own hometown here in Delaware, in Wilmington, and whether or not people in poverty are in even more poverty now. Looking at, you know, what does the homeless rate looks like? What, what's the practicality of things in our country? And when I, I look at that, I go, we are in trouble. Like the, the collapse is definitely closer than further away. When you made your warning four years ago, is this the collapse or is that still yet to happen? Um. I think we have yet to go. I think that there's, I think the major collapse is going to be probably further down the road. Um, and I think really, honestly, I think that we are going to see quite the reversal to inflation and we're going to see a strong dollar that really starts to destroy a lot of the nations and corporations around the world. We're going to see a sovereign corporate debt crisis come from it. And that's really kind of, it's almost, it's almost difficult to even wrap your head around considering all the money printing that has happened and the inflation that we had seen from it. But what it comes down to is that the debts that have been written around the world that are due in US dollars, and that is really where it comes, that's like the tricky thing to kind of wrap your head around. Because in order to get out of the dollar, like if everybody decided, okay, that's it, we don't want anything to do with the dollar, I don't wanna have dollars, I don't wanna have any debt in dollars, I just wanna be shed of it all. If everybody kind of took the same attitude that they just want to be done with the dollar, well, then they have to get the dollar first in order to get out of the dollar, right? You have all these debts that are due in dollars. Well, then you are scrambling to try and get those dollars to pay off your debts. And if everybody takes the same attitude at the same time, there's just simply not enough dollars to pay off all those debts. And so unless the Federal Reserve is going into some like not just the quantitative easing that we have seen, but like extremely heavy quantitative easing, there's no way that they can even print up enough money to pay off all these debts. So at some point when that attitude does take off where people are trying to get out of the dollar, trying to get out of the debt, gonna move into another currency or something like that, I could really see where the dollar would bubble during that time where you would see it being, it would be worth more than what you could ever possibly imagine. And then it'll pop and it'll all be over. So that would be like the major crisis taking place is that once the dollar does extremely, you know, go extremely strong and then pop, that popping right there will be absolutely devastating to everybody. I mean, that's going to be around the world. At that point, there's going to have to be a new system set up to deal with the world reserve currency since the dollar would no longer be that, that, that safe haven place to go to. And since there's nothing really out there that even remotely comes close to doing what the U.S. dollar does, I just don't see how that's going to happen anytime soon. So as far as I can tell, I don't think that we are going to have an inflationary collapse. We're probably going to end up seeing a strong dollar bubble and then a collapse from that. All right. We're going to take a break real quick here. Yeah. When we come back from this break, I want to talk to you about digital currency and how that could possibly be implemented on purpose for a collapse. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about China and our debt to China and kind of go through that. You guys okay. are listening to America Emboldened with Greg Bolden here on the America Out Loud Network. We're talking to the uneducated economist, and we'll be right back after this break. Now, the spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America Out Loud. Now, we invite you, friends, to invest some of your time with our magnificent family of experts, their minds and voices. It's all back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years, but our diet and the way we eat has, creating an environment in your mouth for bacteria to wreak havoc on your teeth and gums. For better oral health, get Spry Dental Defense, an oral care line designed to combat acid-creating bacteria. 
The toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and gum all contain xylitol, a natural ingredient shown to dramatically improve oral health. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural retailers. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Welcome back, Bold Americans, to America Emboldened with Greg Bolden on the America Out Loud Network. If you've been listening, we've been talking to uneducated economist Simon, who is talking about inflation. We're talking about the instability of the dollar possibly causing an economic collapse. And right before the break, I said I wanted to talk about digital currency creation and the role that I think that China plays into this conversation. So I started following economics more intently back in 2008. And the person that opened my eyes up to our economics, and this may shut people down on listening to what I have to say, but it was Ron Paul. Ron Paul was running saying, when we give money and and mortgage away our future to China, we make our country less secure. But my uh, friends that were in economics said to me, we don't have to worry about that. And it's because of what you just stated before the break. They said, you got to understand, China can hold no power over the trillions of dollars that we owe them. Because if we pull back and say we're defaulting on it, we tank their entire economy. And that is the dichotomy of this power struggle that I think is in the world right now, because China does know that we are in debt to them beyond what any American could ever understand. We have borrowed so much money. Trillions of dollars have been financed through China. But it's also that whole stability that China knows that they have to find a way to usurp power through uh, coercion in some ways, or else when this currency for digital currency goes, they will be powerless and they will be left footing the bill. Have you ever thought about the global wars and global politics of what's going on right now when we see what's going on from Russia, the Ukraine, China saber rattling, that it could all be uh, just a preface to a digital currency where all of us are using the exact same almost crypto service using our cell phones that there's no more fiat paper money. Yeah. Um, in fact, I'm pretty sure that's what we're going to eventually end up with. Um, it really what it, you know, when I think about like China and their exposure to the dollar and what they are, what they are doing, because a lot of people say, yeah, China wants out of the dollar. They don't want the dollar at all. I don't see it that way. Um, you know, you can take like places like Sri Lanka or uh, Pakistan and these these countries, these corporations within these countries, they're all in debt and they're all in debt in U.S. dollars and they're not in debt to U.S. dollars to the United States. A lot of them are in debt to U.S. dollars to China. So like China has borrowed or lent them money in U.S. dollars. So when it comes to like places like Sri Lanka, when the dollar started getting stronger and they had no real income coming in from, you know, tourist attractions or whatever it is that they try to do to make money. And they started going into default on their bonds. Well, it was default on those bonds that were due to China and they were due in U.S. dollars. So as the strong dollar starts to cause pain around the world, China could be a very big beneficiary to that strengthening dollar as they were the ones who lent out a lot of this money to these corporations and these nations around the world. So that's really where, like, I think a lot of people have missed, like, what the trade wars and what the currency wars are really going to look like. China is, I don't think China is really interested in carrying the world reserve currency. I don't think that's like any interest to them because there's really two things that you need to have, especially in the condition that we are in today, in order to have a world reserve currency. One of those things is, is you have to have a safe and liquid asset like the U.S. Treasury. And you have to have a nation that's willing to go into deep enough debt to provide the world with that safe and liquid asset like the U.S. Treasury. There's no nation out there that's willing to take on that kind of debt. 
And then the other thing that has to happen is you have to provide the world with the dollars, right? So this is like Triffin's dilemma. How do you expose the world to your dollars at the same time handling a domestic monetary policy? So really what it comes down to is that you can't really provide the world with dollars unless you start buying their stuff. So you have to have a trade deficit that's far beyond what any other nation is willing to do as well. So the United States being the biggest borrower and the biggest consumer of the world's stuff is why we have the world reserve currency. And there's no other nation that's even remotely close to going to do that. Now, there is some ideas that are set up like through the BRICS nations, you know, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. You know, there is some ideas about some people who have set up some systems but again, they are so minute comparatively to the U.S. dollar that I just don't see where anything else is going to compare. At some point, we are going to see digital currencies start to become the norm for all nations out there. All the central banks around the world will eventually move into a central bank digital currency. At that point, it would become very easy to build a basket of currencies out of those digital currencies and then have like a main one world currency that's built up of a basket of central bank digital currencies, whether it's like an SDR kind of cryptocurrency, or it really could be the Federal Reserve and the Fed coin that does it, that just go ahead and just use that as the world reserve currency since it's already established. But I really think that it's probably going to be moving more towards a basket of many central bank digital currencies that are going to be the one world reserve currency. I'll tell you, digital currency scares the absolute hell out of me. I'm going to explain why, and I'm going to explain my my opinion and theory, all right? And then from your uneducated economist view, tell me why I'm wrong. Tell me why I'm right. Tell the listeners, because I don't claim to know anything. Uh, I'm just a guy with a critical mind that somehow got a radio show. So <laughs> my thought process here is this. If I look at China, they have a credit system where they can actually stop you from making purchases based upon what your credit system is in the country. A digital currency, and let me, let me tell everybody right now, I know for a fact that if you look up like MasterCard, Visa, they all have purchased the technology already in the United States to have a digital credit on everybody's account. They know what your carbon footprint is based upon every single time you take out your debit card or credit card. I, you can look up the articles. I can even link them in the description down below of this episode. My concern is this. Right now, you have one party who is trying to bring in the Green New Deal uh, that would like to say that all fossil fuel usage is horrible and we need to get people off it. If we go to a digital currency, what's to keep the banks and the government to take away people's personal liberty and freedom and say, you know what, Simon, today you drove too far or this week you drove too far. There's no more gasoline for your car. You should have went electric. Or you know what, Simon, we care about your health as we've seen with COVID, right? We care about your health. And as a result, Simon, we want to make sure that you don't get any more McDonald's this month. So when you go to use your digital currency, the government will have the ability to block your usage. With dollars in your pocket, you have freedom. The reason why gold and silver and precious metals are still so valuable. I really fear for a digital currency world. Am I being too reactionary or uh, do you see this as an infringement on liberty in the future? Um, well, I certainly see that it can be. Um, the only thing, I mean, that's, those are like the scariest, you know, kind of ideas that come before, you know, behind the central bank digital currencies is that they will be able to, you know, track, trace, tax, do all the other stuff to you. Um, you know, one of the other, but, you know, which is kind of scary when you think about that kind of stuff, ultimately they could only already do that to you. You know, they can turn off your debit cards. They can lock up your bank accounts. Most people don't carry all their cash, you know? So most of that is locked up in the bank anyway. So if you kind of have that concern, then that already kind of exists today. Um, you know, when it comes to privacy, most people carry a cell phone with them. They don't, they don't think about like how Google and Facebook record everything that's going on as far as your conversations around your phone. So these, the exposure of our privacy has already kind of been compromised with the, you know, with the technology of today. Really where I feel that the central bank digital currencies are going to come into play is it's gonna come in as a benefit to the people. It's not going to come in as some sort of like deterrent. In fact, I, I could even see where they would allow like 
illegal transactions to happen, black market deals or drug trade, drug trades or something like that. And the reason why they would allow all that to happen is simply to build up the confidence for people to use it. Like if they started immediately started putting down the pressure on people saying, Oh, we're going to limit all this stuff. Then they would be like, yes, good. I ain't doing it. You know? And then they would just avoid it at all costs. But if you put it in during a crisis time, like, you know, we have a major recession, we have, you know, food shortages, like we talked about, if you have some kind of natural disaster or war and the government steps up and says, Hey, all the stimulus that we put out before was so cumbersome and it was so screwed up and nobody got it right. How about instead we do these digital wallets and we'll just load up your funds, right? We'll just load up your cards. Well, people would be very much on board for something like that, especially if it was free money, right? So here you tell them, it's just like, okay, you got a natural disaster in your area. If you load up on the digital, we're going to send everybody in this particular area a bunch of money, right? Or people who are unbanked, this is going to give you an ability to be banked or whatever it is, like, you know, all the welfare stimulus or something like that that comes out. So the people, when they first get introduced to the central bank digital currency, they're not going to, they're not going to deny it. They're not going to be like scared of it or anything like that. They're going to be very much accepting. In fact, they're probably beg for it, you know, because there's going to be some kind of natural disaster or crisis that's happening at the time. At the end of the day, the banks are not interested in controlling people's behavior. I don't think that's really what, what this comes down to. I think really what it comes down to with the central bank digital currency is to try and take interest rates into negative territory because they can't really do that with cash in the system. In fact, there's a, I think it's Bureau of International Settlements did a blog on it years ago. And I had done a video when I found that uh, article in that blog. And they were talking about how to take or how to take accounts into negative territory and how they have to use something called e-currency. They weren't calling it central bank digital currency at the time. They were calling it e-currency. And the idea behind it is, is that if you have a negative interest rate on your bank account, like you go and you put your paycheck into the bank and it immediately has a negative interest rate attached to it, meaning you're not going to be able to pull out as much as you just put in. Most people are not going to behave in a way that keeps their money in the bank. They're going to want to pull all that money out in cash and just stick it into the mattress because it would much rather have a cash holdings than to have loss to a negative interest rate in a bank account. So the banks are aware of this. They know that this would happen. So what they are going to do is they're going to introduce this central bank digital currency, have it separated, but have two of them working side by side. Most people won't even recognize that there's a difference. They'll think, okay, well, I got central bank digital currency and I got cash in my hand. They work the same. There is no difference. They're going to think about it like a debit card or a credit card or anything else like that. But there is going to be a difference between it because the e-currency that comes out, that's going to have a negative interest rate attached to it. So as people start pulling their money out in cash, the banks are going to start charging a fee to pull out or to deposit their cash. So that's going to be equivalent to the central bank digital currency's negative interest rate. So holding cash will not be a benefit to you. And you'll go down to the store or anywhere else, and they're going to be like, well, if you're using cash as opposed to your central bank digital currency, we're going to charge you more for it because they're going to encroach a fee by dealing with the cash going into the banks. So the people are just going to look at the cash and go, this stuff is a nuisance. It's too much of a pain. I don't even want it. Central bank digital currency is going to be much easier to use. And that's really where people are going to get suckered into it. After the cash is gone, then all the draconian stuff, all the, you know, all the pressure will start coming down on the people. But that's so, going to take a long time, you know, to get there. But Okay. Because I don't normally push back on my guests. I'm a big proponent no, no, of not, it, yeah. well, no, I, I, I'm a big proponent of not, I got you moments or anything else. But as you were talking, I was actually finding myself reacting and going, okay, I'm going to let you finish. I'm glad that you went to the spot at the end of, it could have draconian because- mm-hmm. As you were speaking, I, I think you were contradicting yourself at times with, well, this is how they're going to get you in. And so you're, you're realizing that it's an entrapment of oh, yeah. what this is going to do for digital currency. But I, w- I was concerned that you were going to say that it wouldn't have an impact on liberty. And here's what I see. In oh, 20- no, it will. Oh, it yeah. definitely will. And so that's, that's my concern. And I want to make sure that you know listeners knew exactly where you were coming from because I thought you were going down this road of this is great. <laughs> it's going to be so much better yeah. than cash negative um, interest, but I, yeah. I don't think that's where you ended up. 
No, um, I have a tendency to like, I, I'm a very much a realist and I don't get scared by things like, I, I mean, if they're going to come down with a central bank digital currency, then I'm going to do things that are going to be outside of that system. I hold gold and silver and physical possession because I want something that's outside of that third party. I want an insurance policy that is not going to be reliant on somebody's app get, or, you know, somebody filling up my app or sending me an envelope in the mail or my account being opened. Physical possession of gold and silver is by far the only way, like by far the only way that you can protect yourself from anybody else out there is by holding that physical. Once you have that physical and you hold on to it, well, then the rest of the stuff doesn't seem so scary, right? Now you can like take in the idea of like, what are the benefits? What are the, you know, what are the damages that can become from this? That's how I kind of look at stuff. I don't, I don't get scared. Like I'm not scared of the new world order. I'm not scared of, you know, the world economic forum and all that other, I know I'm not scared of those people. I like bring it on. Right. I am, I am not, you know, that doesn't concern me whatsoever. Um, I mean, it does give me some concern about it, but it's not so much so that I'm not preparing myself to deal with it. And that's really what it comes down to knowing that it's coming gives you at least the ability to do something about it. Right. Fighting it is going to be futile. It's not, it's, there is no point in fighting it. I mean, you can try and there's a lot of stuff that you can do to try and avoid getting into it. But at the end, it's, it's going to happen. There's no way that you can avoid it and, you know, might as well be prepared in all ways for it. Yeah. I think that my, my eyes were opened back in 2020 during the pandemic when I'd go to a business and they would say, due to the coin shortage, I'm going, what the hell? Where did this coin shortage come from? Everybody all of a sudden had signs, almost like they sent out every single McDonald's, every single uh, Costco, every single place. Please put this sign up. You're no longer allowed to take coins. It's almost like we were manufacturing a coin shortage, which I don't think it's almost like I believe we are manufacturing a coin shortage. I think government would love to get us away from coins at this point. And that's the first step. And right. I look at, like you even said uh, during one of your first videos, which I, I chuckled because I was like, what a simplistic way to look at investing. And I loved it. If you have pre-1981 pennies mm-hmm. worth more than their weight in copper, right? Uh, because of what they're made up of. And so I'm, that's a funny question we could go to. At the time that you recorded that video, copper was double the price. Four years later, is it still double or would people have even more money for that roll of uh, pennies? Um, I, I, well, I think it's even more now. Uh, I can't remember what the face value, what the, I haven't looked it up recently, but coinflation, uh, co co-inflation, like coinflation.com mm-hmm. is an excellent site to go to. It gives you the exact weight value of a copper penny and what it's worth due to the copper prices today. Um, I'm not sure exactly what it is. I know it's up there a little ways, but, uh, I save all my copper pennies. Like, I mean, I go through the change at work. I pull out all the copper I do with all my change at home. I separate all those copper pennies out of it because it really is. I mean, why, you know, if you had all your wealth in copper pennies, you would have at least double your, double your wealth and weight value of metal. So yeah, why not? I mean, that's a great way to, you know, protect yourself from anything that's going on out there is by having your money tied up in a item that doesn't have like a downward loss to it. And what I guess I mean by that is that even if I'm just absolutely crazy, you can spend it at face value. Like there's no loss to it at all. Right. You know? And so, yeah, copper pennies and nickels, same thing. And nickels have the face value of it in weight value as well. So yeah, that's kind of what I look at as, as far as those things is like, how do you protect yourself from, you know, being exposed to fiat currencies or debt or anything else out there? Having physical items is the way to go. So a couple of things, and we could probably talk for a really long time about so many different topics here, because you just said fiat currency. Um, let's start there. I want to get to uh, Richard Cantione. Um, I want to get to the bullwhip effect a little bit more, um, but let's let's stay with fiat money. Sure. Is our money worth anything? Um, no, not, not really. Um, I mean, our money isn't really worth anything. If you're looking at the Federal Reserve notes, like the the dollars themselves, those are actually liabilities of the Federal Reserve. So they're due back to the Fed. Now, the Fed has liabilities and they have assets. The assets, although it's very little, they have gold, they have U.S. treasuries, they have mortgage-backed securities. Do they have gold? Do they have gold? I Um, mean, here's the thing, like Fort Knox, right? 
Fort yeah. Knox is supposed to be where we're keeping all this gold. When's the last time we audited to make sure our gold is there? Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, it does. It does leave a, a lot to to be questioned whether or not it's actually there. Now, if you go and you do enough research into the Federal Reserve, especially when it comes to the Federal Reserve notes. Now, if you notice, like when you look at a Federal Reserve notes, they're issued by different banks. They're not all issued by the Federal Reserve. I mean, they are the Federal Reserve, but there's, you know, there's 12 regional banks or something like that. And these different regional banks will print out their own money. Right. So you got like notes that come from Dallas, notes that come from St. Louis, whatever. And you look at the that those particular banks and you look at the Federal Reserve note liability, you're going to see that the Federal Reserve notes are the first lien and paramount right to the Federal Reserve balance sheet. So this is something to think about. Like if you ever had a situation in which that the Federal Reserve went bankrupt, right? Well, it's the folding paper dollars that you have that is the first lien paramount right to their balance sheet. And the very first thing they list is gold and then SDRs, and then they start going into the other assets that they have out there. And so SDRs is the special drawing rights. It's basically a basket of world currencies, you know, other currencies from different nations out there that form the SDR. So the Federal Reserve does have like those Federal Reserve notes out there, those paper dollars as the first lien paramount right. So if you were to go to the Federal Reserve during a bankruptcy, you might be able to claim some gold from them, right? Because that's what they have listed on their balance sheet. So is it there? I don't know. Is it possible to even get your gold from a bankrupt, you know, Federal Reserve Bank? <laughs> I, I don't know about that either. But at least the dollar has that presumed idea that it has that backing. it. Right. So I, is our money worth anything? Not really, but kind of it does if you kind of follow that trail. You know? Yeah, I, I worry that we're in like a crypto crisis with our dollar bill in some respects. Like you look at companies like Coinbase, Voyager, especially Voyager. Voyager just went bankrupt and everybody's money's frozen and most people lost everything. And the FDIC does not back cryptocurrency. But if you had cash in the system, you, you're insured up to 250000 unless they didn't put it in the right spot. And so crypto is like this whole other conversation that we're not getting in today. Um, when you talk about the dollar bill, my thing with the Fed is no one has audited the Federal Reserve to make sure they actually have what they're supposed to have. And my concern is if we were to try to do so, the money wouldn't be what it is. It would collapse our economy. So it's better off we don't have that conversation. Um, and this kind of goes into the conversation of uh, 2020, the pandemic, starting to print all these stimulus checks, sending it out, and this uh, Cantillon effect that you talk about. And I want to talk about that in just a second. We're going to do that on the opposite side of the break. Everybody, you're listening to America Emboldened with Greg Bolden on the America Out Loud Network. We'll be right back with Simon, the uneducated economist. All right. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the pulvidone iodine-based nasal spray, Cofix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the Cofix RX banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD. Because of COVID-19, many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 112 times per month. But by simply keeping our immune system strong, we can stay healthy and put our worries at ease. One little known way to do this is by taking AC11 a patented supplement from a plant in the Amazon rainforest. Studied for over 20 years and backed by over 40 scientific peer-reviewed studies, taking AC11 has been proven to extend the life of immune cells called leukocytes, allowing you to boost immunity naturally. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of AC11. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Welcome back. 
Welcome back, everybody, to American Bolden with Greg Bolden on the America Out Loud Network. We're sitting here with Simon. We've been talking to the uneducated economist. He is anything but uneducated. He is only uneducated by his maybe college degree, lack of having that degree, uh, but he definitely knows what he's talking about. Enjoying this conversation today. Right before the break, we were talking about what is a dollar worth? And during the pandemic under President Trump, we started printing trillions of dollars. President Trump, President Biden in stimulus checks to re-stimulate the economy to help businesses that lost uh, income due to the shutdown due to the coronavirus and the effects that the pandemic had worldwide. But as my family taught me, there's no such thing as a free lunch. When you start pumping more money into the economy, when you start putting more money in people's pockets, eventually the people that provide the goods say, hey, you know what? People will buy my product for more money now because they have more dollars in their pocket. And because we didn't have probably a sound way to distribute those funds to the people who truly needed those funds, there were individuals that received the money that that was their vacation for the year. And nothing wrong with that. People can take their money however they want. But again, we're paying for it now. Is this a good example of the Cantillon effect? And do you want to talk about the Cantillon effect uh, for the listeners that are unaware of uh, who he is and, and how you learned sure. about it and what you talk about? Okay. Yeah. Um, so Richard Cantillon, he was, um, he was an economist from back in like the 1700s. And he wrote one of the first essays on economics. Like until that time, there was no real like understanding of how economics work. And so he wrote this essay out and in this essay, he has a couple of chapters that really talk about the Cantillon effect or what happens when you have new money coming into the system. Um, in this Cantillon effect, the simplest way to kind of understand it in the way that a lot of economists explain it is that when new money comes into the system, the people who have first access to that money, they get to spend it at face value. But then as this money starts flowing through the system, it starts driving up the prices of all the goods and services. And then the people at the end of the line who get the money last, they suffer the most with it because their wages haven't gone up, but yet they're dealing with these higher prices. And that's usually where most economists kind of leave the Cantillon effect. They just kind of leave it at that and they don't talk about it any further. But really, when you read Cantillon's essay, he goes much deeper into what happens after that, because once this money starts flowing into the system and the people who have first access to that money spend it, starts driving up the prices of everything. Well, they don't want to spend that money on higher priced goods like they want to spend it at the face value that they have gotten it at. They want to enjoy all this new money that's coming. So what they end up doing is they start looking out of the, the domestic suppliers, start searching out foreign competition to compete with the higher prices that are happening with the domestic manufacturers. That starts driving out the domestic manufacturing and that drives out the people at the end of the line because that's their jobs, that's their livelihood. So they start seeking out another place to live. So as this money starts to pour in, ever increasing amounts of foreign production start coming into that particular area until they have driven out all the domestic manufacturing and all the inhabitants. And the only people who are left are the people who have access to that money, the people who are importing those foreign goods and selling them. And that's pretty much the only thing that's left are the poor people at the very end, the poverty stricken ones. Once the new money turns off, everybody falls into poverty. And that's really where Cantillon is talking about the Cantillon effect. That's how it kind of plays out. And you can really see a good example of that just right here in the United States. If you go back into like the 50s, 60s, when we were manufacturing powerhouse, we produced and lent out more money than anybody else in the entire world. We produced more stuff and sold it, and we lent more money out there. Well, now we borrow more money and we consume more than any other nation out there in the world. We have completely flipped. And that's from all the new money that came in. As we were manufacturing and selling stuff to the world, that was new money pouring into the United States. As that new money came in, it increased our standard of living. We had the best standard of living of any other nation in the entire world. And because of that, we started searching out for all those luxuries out there. And that's where we found the foreign competition started to come in. Well, the more that happened, the more foreign competition kept coming in, the more we started selling off our debt. That was the new money coming in, was us selling that U.S. debt. Well, now we're getting to a point where we are just reliant on U.S. debt sales. That's the new money coming in, in foreign competition of pretty much no domestic manufacturing or very little of it. This is the compromised position that we are now in. That was really where Cantillon, I think, was trying to explain the Cantillon effect is that as that new money comes in and drives everybody into luxuries, eventually the new money turns off and everybody falls into poverty. 
I feel like uh, when I was growing up, if you told me what my household income would be, I would have said, I'm rich. Oh my God, I'm going to live such a great life. Here I am with two children and uh, I, I make a, a good living between you know my wife and myself. I mean, we're, we're not hurting as far as what I see on the balance sheet, but I don't have a savings account like I thought I'd have with this type of money. I, I don't have the ability to drive uh, whatever I want to drive. I, I drive a very simplistic car and I'm happy with that. I'm not somebody who needs to be showy, uh, but my point is I can see this effect in the middle class being drawn down to poverty. And my heart breaks for people in poverty because of this, because if I'm feeling the economic crunch in my demographic, and I don't want to say demographic, if I'm feeling the crunch in my economic status, the people in poverty, I mean, why aren't we having that conversation about how poor the poor have gotten? But but the middle class is being completely eradicated from the equation. Um, you know, I always wanted to be middle class. That's I, I was happy here. And now I'm going, now I need to find a way to make more money. I need to find a way this, to, how am I going to afford raising my children the rest of the next time up till they're 18? Things are getting more difficult. I'm sure you see that. Um, yeah. You know, I kind of see it in two different ways there. Um, Cause I'm in a, I'm in a, like a legacy city here, right? I'm Astoria. It's a 200 year old city and it's really popular. I mean, they make movies here like the Goonies and stuff like that. So over the last 20 years, the gentrification that has happened here in Astoria and just the County itself has driven out a lot of the working class people and has driven up the real estate prices to a point that is just like, it's truly unaffordable for the average person. And I think about myself, like, you know, I work at a lumber yard. I do retail sales. My wife, she works at a co-op. You know, it's not like, I mean, we have good jobs. I mean, they're okay. They're not like, you know, these high paying jobs. There is no way that we could make it in this city. None. If I didn't have YouTube channel going, like if I didn't have that side income, there's no way I would have had to leave this area altogether. But that's where I think like differently than I am. Than one, because this is really what I kind of think about now. It's like, there's no way that you can make it with your average job now, but there is so many ways to make money that really it's like, if you don't have a side income, it's your own fault. Like, you know, there is, there's so much side income that there's so many gig, gig economy things happening, you know? I mean, even just something as simple as running DoorDash or something like that. I mean, there's, there's ways of making money that is so easy now and I just don't understand how more people don't do it, you know? And that's, and that's really where I kind of see it. It's like, yeah, even though you have like your average eight, eight hour a day job, you know, your nine to five job isn't going to, isn't going to cut the mustard anymore, but that's okay because there's so many other ways to make money too. So um, I kind of see it on both sides of that, but really like just trying to make it as an average job was as an average person. I don't, I don't know how that's supposed to happen nowadays. And then if you do stumble at some point in your life and you find yourself on really hard times trying to get out of that and then achieve the level again, like to try and get back to where, to where that is very difficult to do. And it only seems to be getting worse as you have the separation of classes getting, you know, more prevalent, you know, rich get richer and the poor get poorer and there's more of the poor. You know, one of the reasons I do this podcast is not to get rich and famous. Uh, it's really to tell stories and educate people I'm an educator at heart. I teach at a public school when I'm not doing this. Um, But at the end of the day, you're absolutely correct that I do have a side of me that's like, I want this podcast to be successful beyond measure. Um, I would love it if, you know, if (laughs) this is my opportunity to say, you know, sure as Simon has his YouTube channel, it's the reason why I have a donate button, right? It's It's the same concept of, hey, we're working hard to promote this other content. I think that's a good call for people to think about. Look at the world around you right now, whether it's cryptocurrency, an Etsy shop, whatever it may be, look at your skills, your talents, and think about how else can I capitalize in this new capitalism? Mm-hmm. If you're not thinking about that, kind of shame on you. But at the same time, maybe some people aren't educated enough to understand that those opportunities are there. So maybe this opens, that's that we're, we're pushing open the door just a little bit, Simon, today for somebody maybe listening to go, huh, there's opportunity and and I should strike why the iron's hot. I might be missing it. And quite honestly, I think uh, podcasting, YouTubing, uh, 
we are still in the beginning phases. Uh, we are not at the end of all of this as a, uh, a project of love that we do, a labor of love. Um, and more people in 10 years are going to go, I wish I'd gotten into podcasting. I wish I'd gotten into YouTubing. I wish I imparted the gifts and the skills that I had for others because there was a market for it and I completely missed the market. And so I think that's an important thing to be honest about with people and to share. And uh, that was brave of you the, to put out there the way you did. Uh, but I appreciate that. I think that's that's great for people to hear. Uh, yeah. Let's talk you know, about I mean, it. Yeah. You know, when it comes to to doing this, like, I mean, especially when it comes to doing like YouTubes or podcasts or anything like that, what I found is like honesty, like being honest with with everything out there. Like, I mean, you know, I'm honest with my life. I'm honest with the stuff that I do. Like, I mean, I drive a 99 Toyota Corolla. It's not like I can't go out there and buy another car. But when I look at how much vehicles cost, like I'm okay driving this 99 Toyota Corolla and the headliners falling down, it's kind of junky, whatever. Like, I don't mind, you know, telling people I'm not going to buy a new car because I like driving this old crappy car to save money. Like that's like my whole thing that I got going on. So people say, why don't you go get a new car? It was just like, yeah, I could. I just don't, I don't want to because it's too expensive. I want to be honest with people and say that is it's like, I don't want to buy this car to increase my status or something like that. I don't need that in my life. Um, you know, to tell people like, you know, straight up, if it's like, I mean, I haven't had money throughout most of my life. Like I have been absolutely broke and it's not until I got this YouTube channel and had, you know, just over the last few years that it's become popular that the ad revenue has actually benefited me when I got that ad revenue coming in, I'm like, Holy moly, I didn't go off and spend that money. I started paying off debts. I like, I paid off my debts. I paid off family debts. I started taking care of all the the issues that I had out there. And when I found like, you know, a situation in which that I needed to buy a house because I was getting booted out of my rental, you know, I'm like, Oh man, now what, you know, it's going to take all my money. And I was just like, that's no big deal. You've lived broke your entire life. It's no big deal to get rid of your, all your money again, you know? And so like being broke to me is not a big deal. Earning money is not, a is not, I mean, it's a lot of fun to try and earn money, but it's not the goal at the end of the day. I mean, the goal at the end of the day is to be comfortable, is to be happy, is to, you know, enjoy your life and stuff like that. So if you focus all your time and effort and energy into just making money, you're going to miss out on life altogether if you do something like that. So it's, it's very, you know, you have to stay humble in everything that you do, including the times that you start making money. You know, it's not like you can just go out there and say, hey, man, I'm going to make all this money for the rest of my life. You know, that's not the way it works. You know, at some point you're going to hit hard times again. So just being kind of understanding of that and being humble about that and explaining that to people you know, it gives them the ability to relate and, and say, yeah, I'm kind of in that same position or I have been in my life. So that's really where I try to do with this channel is to be like, as honest as I possibly can, you know, it's just like, this is what's going on in my life. These are some of the experiences that I've had. And uh, I think that's really where like a lot of people are like, you know, in tune with it. They're like, man, that's exactly what I need in my life. I don't need somebody who's just like, you know, has millions of dollars, explaining how it is that you know, I'm supposed to come up with millions of dollars where I can't even get $10 by the end of the month. You know, it, it's, it takes somebody who has been there doing it, you know, and saying, Hey, this, I mean, I know I got this YouTube channel, but I could have done it with a part-time job too, you know, as far as, mm -hmm. you know, instead of doing YouTube videos. Uh, anyway. <laughs> well, I think uh, it's brilliant that you're doing the YouTube videos. I too understand kind of where you've been. Uh, my first job, uh, outside of entertainment uh, was teaching at a private Catholic grade school where I made the poverty line as my salary. And uh, I went from there, worked as an admissions counselor where I was very close to the poverty line on that salary, uh, working way too many hours. And then I went working for the Catholic church for a while as a youth minister and making video content for them. And uh, so it took a while for me to ever be like, Hey, I'm getting paid a just wage. It took a while for me to work up to that through uh, my photography business and film business and doing uh, education in a public school finally. Uh, so I can completely understand. I think there's wisdom to living it to be able to speak to it. Uh, mm -hmm. There's too many people that haven't lived the experience to be able to speak to it. So I now understand your YouTube channel in a little bit more uh, contextual way 
that I think I'm going to enjoy it more as I'm watching now. I've been watching now for the past week, um, mm-hmm. but now as I'm wa- continuing to follow you, I'm going to enjoy that. I just want to kind of remind people, uh, uneducated economist. If you go to YouTube and just type in uneducated economist, you'll see Simon there. It says street level thoughts, opinions, analysis, perspectives from a working class point of view. Um, And under there, he has a Patreon link where you can help support his work. He also has the ability for you to send a donation to him uh, directly through PayPal. I'm going to put that right now. It's www.paypal.me backslash meat bingo. And that's like the meat, M-E-A-T, bingo, B-I-N-G-O. If if you felt that Simon's words today were helpful to you and you now know that he's supplementing his income with this YouTube channel, which 100,000 subscribers is not, you know, famous YouTube, but it's certainly very, very respectable. Uh, But he could use your follow. So go follow him, help, uh, you know, get great content on a daily basis. Uh, If you enjoyed his perspectives today, send him a donation, buy him some coffee, um, help him out. I, I appreciate you coming onto the show and sharing your perspectives I have a feeling I'm going to reach back out to you in the future as things go south and we're going to reconnect. I, I say this to some guests. I'm always like, you know, uh, maybe we'll, we'll check in quarterly or uh, twice a year and kind of see where things are. I think I'm going to get some feedback about this episode and people are going to say, bring Simon back on. I want to see what the common man uh, is saying about this economy. Uh, so Simon, uh, thank you so much. I just want to kind of wrap up with, one question that if I did not ask, I painted the picture of where you're sitting. People will kill me if I don't ask this question. Why the driver's seat? Why did you settle for this as your look for the YouTube videos? Um, I didn't, (laughs) I didn't, it just kind of, it just kind of happened that way. Um, you know, originally when I did a, when I started doing videos, I thought about them like, okay, well maybe I will, you know, do them from, you know, my, my living room or I'll do them from, you know, some places. And I found like, you know, the audio would be messed up or there would be something that would kind of create an issue with it. So like, you know, the dog would bark or the kids would be playing. So I started doing them in, in my car because of the sound quality that came from it. And, you know, really when you do them inside of a car, you have like, you know, the seats, the upholstery, everything absorbs the sound. So you don't have like this echoing kind of thing going on. It's like, it's actually a really decent sound quality when you do them inside the car. So that's really why I started off in the car. And then as I tried to like progress and move out of the car and like try to do an office or something, I just couldn't find the appropriate spot for it. And then when I did find something that was really cool, I asked the fans, I'm like, Hey, look at this office. It's right along the river. I got this cool view. Wouldn't it be badass to do this from like, you know, do the uneducated economists from this, from this office. And it was like overwhelming. The people were like, if you leave the car, we won't come, you know? So you're stuck in the car. And then after a while, you know, because of the blue fuzzy dice. And then a lot of people will tell me, it's just like, like you were saying earlier, it's like as if they were sitting in the car with me, they'll actually sit at their computer, turn their seat sideways so that I'm like, you know, the, the, yeah. So like the screen is to the side. So they feel like they're sitting inside the car with me. And, you know, that's how a lot of people will watch my videos. So it became to a point that it was just part of my brand and that, you know, now I'm in the car. So I think I'm going to pretty much always be in the car. (laughs) Eventually I may start uh, posting some video of my interviews as well. And if we interview again, I will get in my passenger seat of my vehicle and we'll film that way to be able to share a proper interview. I think that'll be great for people. <laughs> you know what? Um, you know, what's funny that you mentioned that because uh, somebody had actually done an interview. They're like, dude, I got my background. I took a picture of my car. So they they snapped a picture of the passenger seat of their vehicle. And then they had that in the they were sitting in their office, but they had that as the background was their car. So like I'm sitting in my car and they were sitting in theirs, you know, <laughs> see that you've become iconic. You've become iconic yeah. with your look. You also have merchandise. You're wearing the uneducated economist hat, which, by the way, uh, don't be surprised when you see a sale uh, for one of those later tonight. I'm going to be right purchasing on. one. I, I really like it. And I, I even just not even the word, just I. Uh, the show, I should say, not even the show. I just love the words being able to wear that as a brand. That's beautiful. It's awesome. I love it. Uh, so yeah, you'll you'll see a, a sale coming for me in just a few. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny how how many people come up. And they're like, dude, I love that hat. And I'm like, yeah, it's my YouTube channel. Oh, really? You know, they're just like they just love the idea of the hat. So you're right. A lot of people just love the uneducated economist. You know, just the label itself. You know, and so 
Well, uh, Simon, it's been awesome. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, when, if you see Brittany, tell Brittany, I said, thank you so much uh, for kicking you out of the office that day and giving uh, millions of people, uh, 15 million exactly, 15 million total views on YouTube, 15 Hello. million people, uh, the opportunity to hear your voice. Um, I, I can just share with everybody having this in-person type of interview through Zoom. Uh, Simon's everything that you think that he is uh, comes across as. Um, so I've really enjoyed this time. Simon, thank you so much okay. for being a guest. Yeah, thank you, Greg. I really appreciate it. I mean, this has been a great time. Excellent. Well, we'll talk to you soon. I promise. We're going to get back into uh, some more stuff as as the economy hopefully doesn't go south, but I'll check back in with you. So thank you. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, let me just give one more shout out to my podcast. It's called You Guys Let Me Know. You can follow me on YouTube. That's where I'm most active. If you want to send me an email, it's uneducatedeconomist at gmail.com. I do have all the other like social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Patreon, but I'm pretty much active on YouTube and I check my emails daily. That's it, Bold Americans. Another show in the books. Simon, the uneducated economist, anything but. We learned today about fiat currency. We learned about different economic measures and scales. We talked about the possibility for a digital currency to replace the Federal Reserve, tension with China, what their interests are, and the value of the dollar, plus so much else. If you enjoyed today's conversation, let me hear it at Real Greg Bolden on Twitter, or you can email me, greg at americaemboldened.com. I know you had lots of options today. You could have listened to a ton of different podcasts, but you chose this one. And I thank you for your time, and I hope it was worth your while. We'll see you again next time. Be bold, America. Thank you.